Hi, this is Dr. Brandon C. again, a pediatric pulmonology fellow from the University of Florida, and this is another podcast from the ATSP Assembly. Today, we will be interviewing Dr. Leroy Graham, who is a pediatric pulmonologist uh, in the city of Atlanta, who is also a personal friend of mine that I worked with while I was doing my residency in Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Graham is a great example of a physician who is clinically gifted, but also has a heart for serving the underserved. He is the former CEO, but now staff physician at the Bridge Medical Center in Atlanta, which provides charity care, uh, charity primary and specialty care uh, in the city of Atlanta. He is the CEO and medical director of Not One More Life. Uh, the organization that provides asthma screenings and education in the Atlanta community. And also, he is an adjunct professor of pediatrics at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. It's, it's an honor to be here talking with Dr. Leroy Graham today. Um, he is a pediatric pulmonologist that I know from Atlanta. actually did a lot of work with his charity, Not One More Life, when I was a resident in, uh, in pediatrics at Morehouse in Atlanta. So thanks for coming to be with us here today, Dr. Graham. Thanks, Brandon. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so the focus of the podcast today really was something that is really distinctive about you is not only your dedication to pediatric pulmonology, but to charity care in itself. Um, you founded the Bridge uh, Charitable Health, 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 uh, Health Center in Atlanta, and um, just wanted to talk to you some more about that and see how we might be able to get some of our other members of the uh, ATS Pediatric Society or just pediatric pulmonologists in general uh, involved more in charity care? Oh, great, so, Brandon. That's a great, that's a, that's a great invitation. Um, and I love to talk <laughs> about Bridge. Uh, Bridge Atlanta Medical Center was founded at the end of 2014 by myself and some like-minded individuals who really thought that um, we needed to put a slightly different spin on the charitable health center. As you know, most charitable health centers offer primary care. They also offer a venue for learners to get involved in community medicine. But as a specialist, I was struck by the fact that rarely do the patients that come to charitable clinics have access to specialty care. And particularly when you deal with chronic disease, the uh, the ability to have care coordination, that is the interplay between primary care and specialty care is so very critical. And uh, there's so many people without, in this turbulent kind of foolish healthcare environment, there's so many people without uh, access to healthcare. And many of them have chronic diseases like hypertension, asthma, COPD, diabetes, where truly these can be managed to some extent to the prim by the primary care physician. But as we as specialists know, uh, the coordination between a uh, well-placed specialist and a primary care uh, is very critical. So we founded Bridge, and, and we're able to provide cardiology, pulmonology, women's health, endocrinology, uh, podiatry, and behavioral health on a strong backbone of primary care uh, with family medicine, internal medicine, and peds. So uh, it's, been, it's been a really novel kind of approach. Uh, we uh, have had some challenges, but I'm, I'm proud to say that we're doing quite well and actually merging with a larger clinic, Good Samaritan Health Center in Gwinnett County, right just north of Atlanta, which has a plethora of primary care. So it's a good marriage and uh, a good fit, and I think we're going to be able to serve people even better. Okay, awesome. Would you say that what you were just talking about now, was that kind of what inspired you to get into the charitable care? Was there something that happened on earlier on in your life that uh, inspired you to devote so much of your time to uh, charity medical care? 
Yeah, I, I think um, as a person of color and, and, and raised kind of, I guess, low middle class or whatever you might say, you know, I, I was always struck as I went through medical school residency and my fellowship with disparities in healthcare, and and the poor and minorities are disproportionately affected in terms of morbidity and mortality to conditions while, you know, existing in the general population, and they seem to do worse. And often it, it struck me that access to care was a big problem. In tandem with that is just actionable education. When we started Not One More Life, which goes and partners with communities of faith, schools, and other organizations, to uh, educate uh, people about lung disease and screen them with validated symptom assessment and spirometry, I was just struck by the fact that so many people in those populations are suffering, in my opinion, needlessly from chronic diseases that we really do have uh, good management for. And it wasn't just access to care, but it was having actionable education about the disease delivered in a um, easily understood and culturally sensitive fashion without appearing to be a missionary or a, uh, you know, kind of a professor, just sitting talking with people and explaining things. And that's something, I guess, it's kind of something that's a focus now with all of the political climate that's going on here in the U.S. as well is access to primary care and people actually having access to their primary care providers, uh, let alone their specialists, with uh, health care coverage. So I know that that's something that's big coming up in the, a lot of the federal advocacy that a lot of uh, medical organizations are doing as well. Absolutely. And I, and I think uh, your listeners are probably aware of this, but, you know, our country spends arguably the greatest proportion of its gross domestic product on health care of any industrialized nation, yet for most disease-specific outcomes, we rank near the bottom of that same group. So it, it's an interesting system. We have technology that is equal with any place else in the world. We have tons of providers, but there's a maldistribution, particularly uh, among the poor and minority populations. And, and the irony, and I, I've said this to people you know, trying to speak truth to power, um, these people, and I hate that term, but these people who are disenfranchised, they wind up getting their care in emergency settings, and they wind up getting hospitalized for things that, you know, hospitalizations that can clearly be prevented. And I, I think what we try and do, not just in our um, – my not-for-profits, but in advocacy and, and kind of uh, shouting against the empire as it was, is to tell people that, you know, giving care that is disparate is actually costly because you take a population that is disenfranchised and you accentuate their morbidity and mortality attributable to disease because they don't have access to the quality of care that they need. And ultimately, uh, since these people cannot be turned away from emergency rooms or hospitals, this costs us all something. And plus, it's the right thing to do. It's a morally and uh, economically viable is what we want to <laughs> – the thing we want to do is a lot of focus on the bottom line. Yeah, and at age 63, I'm, I'm, I'm still a, kind of a passionate uh, liberal or whatever the word is, but I'm also – I'm somewhat pragmatic, and I, and I think at some point we have to realize that in, in our country and, and most of the world, most arguments and decisions ultimately follow the dollar, so – People have to begin to look at this, at how we how we deal with our resources and how, how we're most effective. And, you know, many of the, the talking heads and the people that are against uh, uh, uniform or universal access to care uh, really don't look at it at the, in the very economic context that they should. You know, I would like to think in an in a ideal world we all do the right thing because it's right, but 
sometimes we should do the right thing because it just makes sense, you know, in terms of economics and in terms of, uh, you know, this this whole kind of land that we all share. Okay. And when we're speaking about these challenges and everything in, in everyday life for a lot of our patients as well, what was one challenge you think you met when uh, opening up the bridge in Atlanta? What was one of the biggest challenges? You mentioned earlier you ran into some. Yeah, well, what the biggest challenge that we had, and this is true with any nonprofit, is raising money. And, uh, you know, people are, lots of people who are inclined to give, it's the usual suspects, and they have lots of appeals. So when we started Bridge, we had a great model, um, and we struggled a bit in terms of raising money. We were able to, through using all of our specialists, for instance, our, uh, our volunteer, we do employ a family medicine person and the support staff and some nurses and, and so forth. Uh, but it was raising money. And, and one of the things that prompted our merger, quite frankly, was there was an entity that had been uh, around a lot longer than us and had a very developed donor base. And they also realized the need to access specialty care. So it's kind of a marriage made in heaven. But you'll find with all not-for-profits, you have a vision. Uh, and often people like me who are the visionary are, are not maybe the best in terms of the economics and fundraising. So I brought alongside some resources to help me. But at the, at the end of the day, I think I decided that merging with another organization with a strong donor pool uh, made sense. And that's the other thing. When you, when you go into this not-for-profit or this charity sector, you know, you go in with all your passion and your names all over, but you have to realize you got to be pragmatic. So it was my decision to merge with Good Samaritan and actually will be called Good Samaritan East going forward because it's not, at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the vision I had and wanting to see that vision fulfilled. And if it gets fulfilled by merging with another entity, that's good. And we're actually looking at, even with Not One More Life now, as I get older, uh, you know, maybe bringing that under the Asthma and Algae Network of America, you know. So, you know, more and more, I think, not-for-profits in general are finding that while it's a competitive field to try and gain funds, they're strengthened both operationally and in terms of fundraising by pooling those resources and, and kind of finding where we can come together and, and do mergers. And I think you're going to see more and more of that as time goes on. And that, quite frankly, the template for that exists in the business world. Okay. So knowing what you know and then knowing what other people know and kind of collaborating with those who are maybe better at the things that you may not have experience with, focusing on the things that in medicine that you have the expertise in and then bringing other people in to help you out with um, the other aspects you may not be as experienced with. Absolutely. And that, that's a good message message for the assembly is that, you know, we as physicians, uh, we have fairly well-developed knowledge, albeit in a somewhat limited sector, and uh, I think we have to be pragmatic and look, for, especially if you want to do something in a charitable space, you know, be pragmatic and look at partners. Uh, you know, um, we as doctors kind of foolishly sometimes think because we've been in schools for so long, we know a little bit about everything, and in reality, we don't know enough about everything. So I think um, if hopefully your listeners do get interested in charitable work, look for organizations that are strong that you can bring your expertise to, but be willing to, to listen to non-physicians who, who are maybe better at development and fundraising, maybe better at operations and things like that. Because at the end of the day, you, you want to get something done, and it matters less uh, about who's in charge, ultimately, as to who gets the mission done. And... 
So you're talking about what we, us as physicians, when we are, you know, in school, we, you know, we've spent a lot of time there. And even when you get into training mm-hmm. like me or you get into first being an attending, there's a lot of pressure. You know, there's a lot of things you have to get done. You're kind of overworked to be able to, to you Absolutely. know, fit in everything when you first are starting. What is something we can do as trainees or as early career physicians in the uh, Pete's pulmonary field to start to kind of, I guess, mm-hmm. get our feet wet in this area? I think look for options in your community. Uh, I guarantee everyone listening to that lives in a community where there is some type of a charitable health center or if that's what you want to do or there's programs where you can go in and talk to students in schools or there's there's no shortage of opportunities. And what you have to do is realize that you're very, very busy. Uh, You're probably paying back loans. You're probably starting a family. You don't have a lot of time. But if you think about something as simple as you can afford four hours a month, you know, you pick some time that you go down to a local clinic or you glom on to the, the local breath mobile or whatever, you know, and just, just get your feet wet by trying. And, and don't try to necessarily, you know, start your own organization, but look for someone. And you will find that those organizations are so incredibly appreciative of it. And that's the, that's a dirty little secret to uh, to doing charity work is that in reality – no matter how benevolent you think what you're doing is, if you're wired right, you get much more out of it than you give. I mean, finding a niche where you can pour your expertise into helping people, okay, unless you're you're just really, really in need of a psychiatrist's couch, uh, is a very rewarding thing. And, and sometimes I can tell you, uh, your day-to-day of all the things that you do that you have to do, just taking some time where you can go kind of breathe your creativity and your skill set into, into a situation where you're providing something for someone that doesn't have much resources. It's amazing, you know, what you feel inside. And it's not about people thanking you. You just really feel like, hey, you know, I'm making a difference. And maybe just one patient at a time, but it's an incredible difference. And quite frankly, it's very self-serving because it feels pretty good once you start doing it. I can attest to that personally. I think coming from, uh, you know, I was in medical school in the Caribbean, and then I came back to Morehouse to do my my pediatric residency. And when I was there, you know, as a resident in a, kind of an underserved population in downtown Atlanta at Hugh Spalding, where we were, it's it is a little draining. But I felt that coming and volunteering with your uh, organization. You know, we have so many hours we need to do as a resident to to graduate, but really just kind of getting something to do to be outside of myself and to help out with those asthma screenings downtown, down in Atlanta really did kind of help me through everything else as well. It wasn't just, a, oh, I have to do this requirement to be able to graduate. It was more of a, this helps me be able to, you know, kind of refresh myself, remind me what I got into this for, and gives me more energy for when I go back to my training, I think. Well stated. Maybe I should be interviewing you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no but, 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 but Brandon, you're absolutely right. It, it's fun to watch you and other people uh, who volunteered with Not Woman Life in those screenings. I used to sometimes kind of pull back and walk around, and I could see the joy that you got, you know, and, and you got to kind of do something and be the action person at the time when you're still in your training and so forth like that. But uh, your personal skills, your you're caring for people, that comes through. And as you evidenced yourself, and I can confirm by observation, it was fun. <laughs> yes, it was was a lot of fun. That was another uh that was another benefit to it. <laughs> and then I think one other question um 
that uh, we wanted to ask you today, too, was in specifically in an academic setting. Say you're in attending in an academic setting, which I knew you were uh, through Morehouse and working with some of the Emory residents as well. Is there anything from an, like when you're in an academic position like that where you're doing a lot of teaching with residents that you can do to kind of get them involved or to get yourself involved in uh, this kind of work? Well, absolutely. You know, when you're the attending and you have learners, they're looking to you. They're maybe not necessarily modeling themselves on you, but you have an opportunity to pour into them. And as you pour into them how to do spirometry, how to read lung function studies, how to do Bronx, whatever you're doing, you know, you also have that bully pulpit to tell them about, you know, getting involved in charitable work, giving back, social consciousness, and advocacy is something that we as physicians, I think, increasingly need to get involved in. Uh, so I saw when I was an attending in Morehouse and, and before I came when I was attending at the University of Colorado, I saw this opportunity along with the things that they expected to give them a little extra in terms of service, service projects. And you have a chance. I mean, when we're trainees, we're still malleable. I mean, we're laying down, you know, pathways in our brain and how we do things and so forth. So to me as an attending, it was it gave me a bully pulpit. It gave me the opportunity to kind of sow this into people and not proselytizing. And I found I've never found a trainee in any context that wasn't really excited when I told them about that opportunity. And also those trainees can kind of step out of the very stilted environment of training, come do one of these programs and kind of hone their skills and history taking and, and communication. Because one of the things that Not One My Life does and, and similar organizations is we step away from that very, very sterile, traditional doctor, patient, I'm in and out cubicle, I'm watching my clock. I had a person in Not One More Life tell me after, you know, explaining, I'm sure for the 99th time, what asthma was to this person who was not doing well and historically had, had multiple admissions. She said, you know, Dr. Gant, this is the first time that someone sat down, actually sat down and talked to me about asthma and, and really did not, you know, lecture me, but but was on my level and, and quite frankly, in my space, you know, because it happened to be in a church basement or something, and, and was just really happy that they learned things. And I know darn well I wasn't telling them things for the first time, but maybe it was the context, maybe it was the approach, maybe the fact that um, I was volunteering or whatever. They sensed that. Uh, a friend that many of you, you may know is a friend of mine uh, named Jerry Teague. Jerry's head of the division at UVA in Charlottesville is uh, pediatric pulmonologist, fantastic researcher. He tells the vignette when he was volunteering for Not One More Life, uh, Jerry's kind of a colorful guy, and uh, he was at a church, and, and the lady came up to him and says, you know what? She says, it was a church in inner city Atlanta. She says, you know, i got to tell you something. He says, and she called him this, and Jerry does look a little bit like Colonel Sanders. He says, would your Colonel Sanders look in person, self? If you're down here, you must really care. So I'm going to listen to what you say. You know, and just spontaneous lady came up, and I mean, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry is Jerry. He's a white guy. He's, uh, you know, he does look a little bit like Colonel Sanders. But that person was struck by the fact that this was a person that she would not expect to be in her environment. She would not expect a person to be giving of his time to do this. And the transfer of information and the education is so incredibly enhanced in that context because people see your heart. 
They really do. They see your heart. They know you're smart, okay? The, the guy in the ER is smart who talks at them like they're a fool because they're back in the ER again and didn't realize they couldn't afford their medicine or didn't know how to take it or whatever. But in the setting of the charitable care space, people know you're there because you want to be. They listen more. And the transfer of information is so fantastic. And it's much better, I think, globally than anything that we can do in our hospitals, anything that we can do at our bedside, okay? And it may prevent those people from being in the hospital and finding ourselves at the bedside with that patient. And that's an inspiring story as well. I think some of the knowledge that I gained when I was there working with you uh, was, was similar. It really felt like the people for the first time they – knew that we were there, we knew that we cared, and they really wanted to listen to us. You know, it was one time where I'm not sitting in an office where they're paying to be there and they're kind of nervous and they just want to listen to me because they have to. It was more of a, I know you care and I know you're here to help me, so tell me tell me what I need to do. And I was there, you know, I was a, a pediatric resident, and I'm sitting here talking to some, you know, not even related to maybe what I was there to do with the asthma care, but someone would ask me a medical question. It could have been a 50-year-old man asking about his cholesterol and his blood pressure, and I actually was able to help from that standpoint as well. So you get, I think you get a lot more than you give when you when you do these sort of things as well. Absolutely, and that that's I won't call it the dirty little secret, but that's the little secret of doing this. Because quite frankly, you know, when you do this, you, you got to realize we all do things out of self motivation, and and there's no rewards that nobody's going to pin a badge on you because you did this. You have to realize that. You are blessed to be able to do it, and you're blessed to be a blessing to people. And uh, the feedback and the transition, in fact, I I can tell you about patients that I saw in these kinds of things who then I wound up seeing in the charitable health center, or in some cases they got insurance and they saw me in my practice and so forth, and they would go back to that first meeting. They would go back to, well, I met you at Ebenezer and Baptist Church, and you said this, so I think I needed to bring my baby in to see you or whatever, you know, and it's just it's just an incredible experience. And, and you learn. You really refine your communication skills because you're on their turf. You don't have that that imprimatur of uh, you're the doctor, you're the white coach. You just, you just spoke, and you're sitting across the table, and you, you're not under a gun. There's nobody knocking on the door because you're three patients behind, you know. You also are more efficient in that environment, and that, that's a, that's another story. <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you so much for being here to talk to us today, uh, Dr. Graham. And, you know, I know you personally, so I know this is kind of, uh, you know, a conversation between me and you, but I hope that yeah. – Anybody out there who's listening, you know, can get inspired with this. They can get inspired to use whatever little time that they have to get out there and actually make make a bigger difference for some people that may not be the the typical patients that they have coming into their office. Absolutely, and they can they can look at the the Not One My Life website still up there. We're still alive and kicking. But you know, I would I would leave this a thought. You know, I found something that I thought made a difference. I encourage everybody listening to this, think about what you can make a difference. Either you join something to start, but you may find that, hey, I've got a better way to do this. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna do a little bit different model. I'm going to go off in this area. But just get your feet wet. Get a taste of it, and then lend your creativity because I'm, I'm really fascinated. I'm 63 years old now, but I'm really fascinated at the young people coming up now. I think that they're a different generation. I think in some ways they might have more social awareness. Uh, my daughter's a millennial. Uh, 
I, they may have more social awareness than maybe I even had when I started this. And I think the future is incredibly bright if people want to step out of their comfort zone and get into the charitable care space. And and I look to see the new innovations of the of the people in the generation behind me that are going to take these ideas and make them even better. And that's going to be fun. Also, I can watch it from the beach. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for being here with us today, Dr. Graham. It was an honor. Well, Brandon, it was my honor, too. And uh, just good luck to you. You're you're doing good stuff. And I just want to say to all the people that are reaching this is that uh, have some fun. It's good. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another podcast from the ATS Peds Assembly. Uh, you can find more information about the organizations that Dr. Graham is a part of by going to bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E-A-M-C, at .org, or you can go to notonemorelife.org to find both the organizations that he is involved with. Uh, you can find my advocacy efforts online by following me on Twitter, username at B-S-E-A-Y-0-5. And the ATS Pediatric Assembly is also on Twitter under the username at ATS Peds. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today, and keep breathing easy. Thank you.